passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. When you hear the phrase, the good life, what comes to mind? We have a couple Nebraskans here. So uh, when you hear the phrase, the good life, besides the state of Nebraska, what comes to mind for you? For me, it was the American dream. It used to be thinking of all of the things that I could have. I could have a nice job, have a nice car, have a nice house, maybe have tickets to Iowa football games, season tickets. That's not so nice today. But that was what I pictured when I thought of the good life. I thought of nice. What, what do you think of when you think of the good life? It varies from person to person here. And as, as some of our laughter already said, uh, the state of Nebraska, our neighbors to the west, they believe that they've actually found it. They, they know what the good life is, and they're so confident about it that they've actually placed it on their signs saying that this is where the good life is found. Another way of asking this question would be to ask yourself, what would it look like for you to be satisfied in this life? What would it look like for you to be happy in this life? What does the good life look like? Does the Bible have anything to say about the good life? Does, it, does God have anything to say about our search for satisfaction, our search for happiness in this life? And if you look at the church, you would say, yes, the church has an understanding of what the good life is. But oftentimes that good life isn't all that different than what the culture says the good life is. We just have a, a Christianized, sanitized version of the American dream where we continue to pursue the things that our culture pursues, but we throw Jesus in on Sundays. Our culture says that there are many different ways for us to get to the good life. But what if our culture is wrong? What if our culture is off? More than that, what if the church, in large part here in the United States, has missed the point too? And that's the question that our text this morning wrestles with. Peter answers this key question. What is the key to the good life? I want to just start by reading one verse from our passage this morning. Actually, the first half of this verse. And it talks about Peter's statement that this is where the good life is found. This is verse 10 of, of chapter 3 in, in 1 Peter. It says this, Whoever desires to love life and see good deeds, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. What Peter is saying here is, is Peter is, is telling us where we can find the good life. If you want the good life, if you want satisfaction in your life, here's how you find it. This is the place that you run to for the good life. See, this would have been really important for Peter's original audience. These people were suffering at the hands of the government. They were suffering at the hands of others in society. They were living in very difficult times. And if the good life, as some people in our culture, and frankly, some 
pastors and, and preachers will say, if the good life just means that I seek God, I, I trust God, and God's going to bless me with the American dream. God's going to give me everything that I've ever wanted physically uh, and materially. If that's what the good life means, then these people would have given up. They were in the midst of the darkest times of their life. And, and to hear that all I have to do is trust God and he's going to bless me materially would have been so wrong. Wouldn't have made any sense to them that they would have just completely given up. But that's not what Peter tells us. Peter shares something that's so radically different than what our culture wants, that our, our culture focuses on, that it gives us comfort when we have nothing. It gives us hope when we've lost everything. And that's what Peter focuses on this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to, to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 8 through 12. And as we study this passage, and as we work our way through it, we're going to really ask ourselves one question. And that question is, what is the good life? So again, if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 8. It says, finally, all of you, having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for the, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good deeds or see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this chunk of scripture, Peter describes to us what the good life is. What is the good life? He starts by saying the good life is found in Christian community. The good life is found in Christian community. Let's reread verse 8. It says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. For the last chapter or so, Peter has been telling Christians how they are, are to operate with other people in this world, how, how they're supposed to interact with others. First, he looks at, at how they're supposed to submit to the government, even when they don't really want to. Then he, and then he talks about how they're called to submit to their bosses and, and to their masters in the workplace, even when they are treated unjustly. And he continues and, and talks about how we're called to love our spouses sacrificially, no matter whether they're Christians or not. And here in, in verse 8, Peter sums up all of these different things and says the key to understanding how you're supposed to operate in your relationships with everyone is really how you operate in your relationships with other Christians. How Christians interact with one another is the key to how we interact with anyone and everyone. And that's what he does here. He shares a little bit of what a Christian community is supposed to look like. So let's go through each of these five words that he uses. First, he says that there should be unity in the Christian community. When he says unity, he's talking about that the fact that there shouldn't be any division over non-essential things. We shouldn't divide over the color of the carpet in the Sunday school rooms. Thankfully, we don't have carpet here, so we don't have to divide over that. Uh, we don't divide over or non-essential issues. Now, that doesn't mean that there is uniformity, that everyone believes and agrees upon the same thing. There can be diversity. There can be disagreements. But a unity overcomes all of those things. See, un unity means being united around something. Let's say that you begin having a conversation, uh, Lord forbid, with a big Packers fan. 
begin talking with a, a giant Green Bay Packers fan. And, and this Packers fan is, is in enemy territory here. I'm not a Vikings fan, but I think that this is a pretty solid place where, where Viking fans are found. And this person, this Packers fan, loves going to Lambeau Field, loves going to Green Bay uh, for games. Because when he goes there, he is with people who get him. He's with people who understand his passion for the Green Bay Packers. He's united with these people at Lambeau Field around the fact that they are Packers fans. Now, outside of that truth, they probably don't have all that much in common. Frankly, they might not even like each other outside the walls of Lambeau Field. But the fact that they are Green Bay Packers fans unites them on Sunday mornings. Unites them. It's the thing that they are united around. See, there's a, a movement today in the church to say that unity is all that really matters. Unity is what's most important. We should be united around unity above all else. That statement is ridiculous. It's impossible for us to be, unity, to be united around unity. We have to be united around something specific. And what is that? What is the equivalent of the Green Bay Packers for Christians? That's what God has said. What God has said is what unites us. We are united around Scripture, around the foundation of what God, has very, His very words are, what He has given us as the foundation for Christian community. So a Christian community should have unity. Second thing that he shares is that a Christian community should have sympathy. If you are hurting, authentic Christian community will weep with you. If you are in pain, authentic Christian community will support you, will pray for you in the midst of those times. One of the things I'm most proud about our church is how focused on others it is. How in the midst of hard times, when people come to us, we, are, we will take care of them. Uh, and it's such a joy, it's such a privilege to be able to help those who are hurting financially, who are hurting emotionally. And to walk with them in the midst of those times. Because that is what the church is supposed to do. That's what Christian community does. It offers sympathy. Another thing is brotherly love. Why is it that the church is united? Why is it that the church shows sympathy? It's because love reigns in the Christian community. One of the ways that this is expressed here at Crosswinds Church is primarily through our life groups. Uh, life groups are a way for us to gather together in smaller groups to, to practice this brotherly love, to, to work out what it means to be a Christian in the midst of community. And if you're not a part of a, a life group, actually, uh, Wade Broom is, is right over here, and he didn't know I was going to call him out on this. And uh, Wade is actually, he and his wife, Tasha, are starting a new life group this, uh, this month. And if you're interested in joining a life group, uh, I encourage you to talk to Wade and Tasha, or you can talk to one of our other life group leaders. Uh, we got Dan Hassman, uh, Tim McFarland, and then a uh, last case scenario is me. Uh, you can talk with me as well. And uh, it's one of the ways that we here at Crosswinds Church focus on how to love one another, how to live out the Christian calling with other people. It's essential for us to live in the midst of brotherly love, in the midst of Christian community. Another thing is compassion. This word compassion, it, I think it's translated tender heart here in this passage. And this, this word that's used for tender heart is used elsewhere in scripture to refer to God's compassion, God's mercy, God's love 
for humanity when he comes to earth as Jesus. When God comes to earth to die for us as a sacrifice for us, he shows us compassion. And Peter is asking us to do the same thing, to live for others, to sacrifice ourselves for others, to show compassion in the midst of Christian community. And the final thing that Peter mentions about Christian community is humility. Christian community is a place where it's not focused on who gets, a credit, gets the credit for the accomplishments that are done. It's a, it's a group of people who are entirely focused on the spread of God's kingdom. A Christian community is a place where there is humility, where there is compassion, where there is unity, where there is brotherly love. It's a place where we can find the good life. You may be wondering, well, what exactly does this have to do with the good life? After all, isn't it possible for me to, to live a good life, to, to be satisfied in my life without fellowship in, in the church? Yes, it, it is possible for us to have satisfaction outside of Christian community for a time. We can operate under the illusion that we will be satisfied outside of Christian community for a time, but it will ultimately fail. See, God created us to live this way. God created us for relationships with others. We are wired with a need that is only met when we spend time fellowshipping with and worshiping with other Christians. If we are not in authentic community, then we are missing out. God has created us with a longing that will never be satisfied without that. The good life is found in Christian community. Next thing that Peter tells us is that the good life is found in following Jesus' path. Take a look at verse 9. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I want you to think of a time where you have been wronged, where you have been hurt by someone else when they were just downright mean to you. It could have been that you were fired unjustly, that you were uh, in the midst uh, of a relationship and that person left for no good reason, that you have been slandered without cause. I want you to think of a time where you've been wronged. In the midst of those times, we feel hurt. We feel pain. And our desire is to make things right. We want retribution. We want to repay people for the wrongs that they have done to us. We want to right the wrongs that we have experienced. We want to inflict hurt on others. We want to go pain for pain and hurt for hurt and loss for loss. But what Peter is telling us here is that that's not healthy. That's not what God wants for us. You remember several weeks ago we were in first or first peter chapter two and peter kind of lays the foundation for this section this verse right here he lays the foundation on, on how we're supposed to handle the wrongs that we experience and one of the things that he talks about is, is leaving it up to, to god we we use this phrase entrust justice to the just judge and we're supposed to in the midst of those times recognize that god is a much wiser judge than we are and just to give it to him and let him take care of it no matter how hard it is but that's just the start that's not all that god wants for us 
See, God doesn't want us to just give him our suffering and our hurt and then to go over into the corner and sulk about it or to cut those people out of our lives. He wants us to bless those who have wronged us, to bless those who have hurt us. Jesus talks about this in in the Gospel of Luke. This is from Luke chapter 6. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. The craziest, most radical thing that you can do when you suffer is to look at the people who are causing you so much pain and to bless them. What exactly does that mean, though? Let's take a look at the story, uh, the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, We're probably familiar with Joseph's life. Joseph was beloved by his father, but he was hated by his brothers out of extreme jealousy. They hated him so much that they actually sold him into slavery and faked his own death. And when he gets to Egypt as a, as a slave, he works his way up in this man's household. And he becomes the, the leader of this household. And, and this man's wife comes up to him and wants to sleep with him. And he says no. And she accuses him of it anyway. And he's sent to prison. He starts in prison. And soon enough, he's actually the number two guy in the prison. And this man comes to him with a dream. And he wants Joseph to interpret for him. And Joseph interprets it for him and says, just do one thing for me. I want you to remember me once you get out of here. The man forgets him. Years go by and eventually Joseph miraculously becomes the number two guy in the entire nation of Egypt. And there's a giant famine in the land. And Joseph's family, Joseph's brothers who think that he is dead, come to Joseph asking for food. Joseph reveals who he is and and says, you know what, why don't you guys just move down here with me and you'll have food here. There'll be a nice place for you to live. And so his entire family moves to Egypt. And then his father dies. And his brothers are nervous that Joseph was just being nice to to them because dad was still around. And so they, they make up this story about their father's last wish was that Joseph would forgive his brothers. And the narrative slows way down at this point. And it says that Joseph begins to weep. Joseph doesn't weep because of all the vivid experiences that, he, that he's gone through, that they come back to him. Joseph begins to weep because his brothers don't understand the power of God to help people forgive, to help people let go, and to offer grace and mercy to those who have wronged us. You see, Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, and yet, He blessed them and forgave them. Joseph was imprisoned because of his righteousness by a woman, and yet he was patient and trusted in God's plan. He was forgotten by the cupbearer of the king, and yet he remained patient, trusting in God's plan. Joseph gives us a good example of what it looks like to bless those who revile us, who slander us. Another example is Stephen from the book of Acts in in Acts chapter 7 and 8. And and I'm pretty sure that when Peter is writing this, he's probably thinking of Stephen. See, Peter and Stephen were good friends. They were both leaders in the early church. They, They met each other while they were following Jesus. And one day, Stephen begins to tell the crowds about Jesus and what Jesus has done 
before them, and the crowds refuse to accept it. And so the, the crowds actually gather together to kill Stephen as his flesh is getting ripped apart. He's getting pelted by stones, and blood is streaming from his face. He just looks up at God, and he says, God, forgive them for what they are doing to me. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He shows us exactly what it looks like to follow in Jesus' steps. The worst evil imaginable was being done to Stephen. And yet, what does he do? He, he looks up to heaven and says, God, don't hold this sin against them. This is what Jesus did. Jesus suffered unjustly at the hand of others, and yet he prayed for them. Jesus was nailed to a cross at the hand of others, and yet he asked God to forgive them. What does it mean to bless those who hate us, who slander us, who revile us? It means that we, just like Jesus, we show grace and mercy and forgiveness in the midst of the hardest times in our lives. Why? Because that's what God has done to us. In our past, we have done great evils against God. We have reviled God. We have slandered God in our past. And yet God chose to die for us, to forgive us, to give us grace and mercy anyway. And Peter says that that's the motivation for us in our own lives. To look at what God has done for us. Look at the blessing that we have received and to be that same blessing to others. The good life is found in following Jesus' path. The good life is also found in grateful speech. Take a look at verse 10. It says, For whoever, lo- whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This verse begins a quote that, that Peter has here from the book of Psalms, from the Old Testament. And, and Peter is quoting this book to prove his point about the fact that we should... Uh, respond in a certain way when we are shown evil in our lives. This is from Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 was written by David. It was written during a time of David's life where he was actually a fugitive. He hadn't become king yet, and the current king was so jealous of him that he was actually trying to hunt David down and kill him. David escapes from King Saul's hand and and escapes to the land of the Philistines. And the land of the Philistines uh, is the place where Israel's greatest enemy lives. He's gone from one desperate situation into another, and yet God saves him and delivers him from the hand, not only of Saul, but also the Philistines. And as a response to that, David writes Psalm 34. And he writes Psalm 34, thanking God and praising God for the deliverance that he has been shown. He's so thankful that God will save his people. And Peter quotes This psalm, quotes Psalm 34 in this section, as a reminder to his people that God will always save his people. God will always grant his people deliverance. That doesn't mean that God's going to make life easy for us. In fact, in Psalm 34, David says, Many are the afflictions of those who follow God. It's a part of life to experience affliction while following God, but it is a promise of God, both in Psalm 34 and here in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, that God will deliver his people. 
in the midst of those situations. As he's talking about this, as he's talking about the fact that God will deliver his people, he says, this is what it looks like to be one of God's people. This is what it looks like to seek after the good life, to, to love days in our lives. And he says that one of the ways that we do that is to speak truth and grace in our lives. We speak truth and grace in our lives. When we get hurt and we want payback, the, one of the easiest ways to do that is to use our tongue, is to lash out with some, against someone with our words. It's an easy way to inflict hurt. But what if we took what Peter and what David are saying here, what if we took that seriously? What if we took it seriously and we committed to keeping our tongues from deceit and, and from, our, from our, our lips from speaking evil? Even if we have been wronged, even in private, what if we desire to live this out in our lives? Peter says that anyone who desires to live the good life will do this. The good life is found in grateful speech. Next thing that he, that he mentions here is that the good life is found in doing good. The good life is found in doing good. Take a look at verse 11. It says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If you want to live a satisfying life, do good with your life. If you want to live a life worth living, do good with your life. Peter tells us that the wise will actually run away from evil, and they will run to what is good. And this isn't always what the world tells us. The world tells us that the good life, whatever that may be to us, it is of utmost importance. And because it is the most important thing for us, it means that we need to do whatever necessary to reach, to achieve that good life. If that means sacrificing family on the altar of work, then so be it. If that means neglecting God for pleasure, then go ahead and do it. It rears its head in tens of thousands of different ways, but it's all focused on satisfying ourselves. The good life is found in doing good. But what is exactly does it mean to do good in our lives? Well, Peter gives us two examples here. He says that we should pursue peace and we should seek justice. We should pursue peace. We should focus on reconciliation over retribution. We should focus on, on bringing harmony to the relationships that we have. And we should seek justice, seek to right the wrongs that are surrounding us in this world. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Stephen actually spoke on the importance of seeking justice in our lives, and in our communities. And this is what God has in mind when he says that we should seek to do what is good. And I'm going to be honest, it is extremely hard work to do that. It is extremely difficult to be suffering on your own, to experience this pain, and to, to give that up to God, and, and say, God, I'm going to let you take care of that, and I'm going to go serve other people who are hurting, other people who are suffering too. It is extremely difficult but it is oh so satisfying to do that. We do good when we desire peace and, and seek justice in our relationships and, and in our community, but that's not it. And doing good, honestly, also just means doing a good job at what you are called to do. 
Whatever your vocation is, doing a good job at it is doing good works. If you're a student, or if you're a stay-at-home mother, or if you're a business professional, or if you are in agriculture, or anything else, God has called you into that area, that vocation. And when you try your best at it, you're doing good works. You're seeking to do good works in the midst of those times, and God is pleased when you do that. And honestly, that's the reason why we do all of this. Because God is pleased. Because God is watching. He is active in our world. And this is what Peter reminds us of in the final verse here, verse 12, where he says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Our culture has a tendency to naturalize everything, to kind of cut God out of everything. It might not say that there isn't a God, but it'll say that God is so far removed and so distant from us that he's not really active in the world today. And I think that this has crept into the church. And, and we as Christians can, can still believe in God, but we can kind of think of God as a passive observer, someone who's not actively watching, actively working in our lives and in the world. But that's not what the Bible paints a picture of. We saw this last week when we were talking about the responsibilities of husbands in the marriage. And, and we saw that God has a specific calling for them. And if they don't take that calling seriously, if they don't honestly focus on their responsibilities, then God is going to hinder their prayers. God is not pleased with them. He's actually against them. And God is saying the same thing here this morning. If you're seeking after the American dream, if you're seeking after what our culture says is the good life at the neglect of God, then God is against you. God desires for us to seek this good life, but this good life is radically different than what our culture paints a picture of. Seek the good life. And you might read this passage and say, well, is that really what the good life is? It just means to, you know, go to church. It means to watch my mouth. It means to do good in everything that I do. It means to live like Jesus. Is that what it means to live the good life? Well, no wonder the good life is so elusive. But I think that that's missing out on, on something that Peter is saying here. And I just want to read to you Psalm 34. This is a psalm that, that Peter's quoting. Don't, don't worry about turning to it uh, if you don't, don't want to. Uh, it's just so important to, to focus on what God wants for us. And this is, this is what David says after he's been delivered from evil. He says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And I just want to zero in on that last sentence there. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
The good life is not just seeking to do good. It's not just having grateful speech or or trying to be like Jesus or, or being a Christian in community. It's all about pursuing God, seeking his face. That's really what the good life is about. The good life is found in the good shepherd. The good life is found in the good shepherd. Our lives will only be satisfied when we turn to God. Our thirsts will only be quenched when we turn to God. I love the way that Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in the 1700s, put it. He he says it this way. He says, to be satisfied in Christ, to fully enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered dreams, but God is the sun. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. You want to know why you find satisfaction in family, in in your job, in, in the things that God has blessed you with here? There's nothing wrong with you. God has created those things for satisfaction. God has created us to enjoy those things. God has given us relationships to point to the fact that we desire relationships. It's a form of fulfillment for us. But what Jonathan Edwards is saying here and what what Peter is saying and what what David is saying in this passage is that these are just the drops, but God is the ocean. You'll be infinitely more satisfied in seeking Jesus than in seeking the things of this world. And so my encouragement for you this morning is to seek your satisfaction in God. Seek to taste and see who God is, that the Lord is good. And when you hear that, you might begin to feel guilty. You might begin to say, well, how do I do that? Uh, Jordan, if if I'm honest, I, I don't really know how I can find satisfaction in God. I come to church because that's what Christians do. But if I'm honest with myself, if I'm honest with others, I kind of frankly find it a little bit boring. How on earth am I supposed to be satisfied in Christ when I don't find anything satisfying about him? When Crystal and I, right before we moved here, uh, we were in Chicago and for my birthday, we decided to go to a Brazilian barbecue place. Uh, a churrascaria is what they're called. Now, I'd always wanted to go to one of these places. I'd always thought that they looked really good, but they were really expensive. Like, way, way, way out of our price range. But I, for my birthday, got a buy one, get one free coupon to go to this place, and so we decided to go for my birthday. Now, the reason why these places are so expensive is because they're all-you-can-eat, but they especially focus on all-you-can-eat meat, all-you-can-eat steaks. This isn't just hamburgers. This is talking about all-you-can-eat filet mignon, uh, all-that-you-can-eat porterhouse, all-that-you-can-eat tenderloin. You get the picture of what we're talking about here. This is why I was so excited to go to this place. And so we had plans to go to this Brazilian barbecue. And like any other man on the face of the planet, I decided that I was going to take this seriously, and I was going to fast before going to this place. I was going to gorge myself on the steaks of Brazil, and it was going to be epic. I woke up 
the morning that we were going, inexplicably, inexplicably, I had breakfast like any other day. Lunchtime rolls around, and I have leftover pizza. And I'm finishing my last bite of leftover pizza. And Crystal looks at me all confused and says, you're sure eating a lot, considering where we're going tonight. And then, then I remember where we were going. And I was just devastated. I was devastated because I had filled myself on leftover pizza when what was waiting for me at this restaurant was, was still out in the future. And so we went to this restaurant and I enjoyed the food that I had. It was, it was good and it was tasty, but I didn't get to eat all that much because I had satisfied myself on leftover pizza. This calling for us to find our satisfaction in God is extremely similar. Too often, the reason why we don't find satisfaction in God is because we found satisfaction in this world. We've filled ourselves to the brim on leftover pizza. We have eaten from the table of the world so much that we don't have an appetite for God anymore. And so as we are called to taste and see that the Lord is good, for honestly, for some of us, the first thing to do is to stop eating the leftover pizza, stop snacking at the table of the world, so that way you can even have an appetite to find satisfaction in God. If your, if your desire to seek God is being killed by Facebook, then get rid of it. If your desire to seek satisfaction in Christ is being killed by Netflix, then get rid of it. If it's sports, then get rid of it completely. Just cut it out of your life. Stop eating the leftover pizza of this world. Begin focusing on the great satisfaction that you can one day have and you can currently have in Christ Jesus. God has created us to desire certain things. God has created us with certain desires. And those satisfactions can only be found in the good shepherd. The good life can only be found in the good shepherd. I want you to just take a moment and think about what would happen if we did this. If we took this command to seek the good life in Jesus, to seek satisfaction in him and him alone, what if we took that seriously? What if we actually lived this out in our lives? Lives would be tra changed. Marriages would be transformed. Children would grow up with a passion and a zeal to follow God, to desire God rather than the things of this world. We could very literally change the world just by desiring Jesus just by seeking after him and seeking satisfaction in him over the things of this world. But it starts with you. It starts with me. The good life is only found in the good shepherd. So let's seek it. The good life is only found in the good shepherd. Let's pursue him. Let's trust in him. And from that place, we can be truly satisfied. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wonderful gift that you are to us. God, we thank you that you have created us to not just know you, to not just learn more about you, 
but you've created us to enjoy you. And Father, as we seek how to do that in our lives, I pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would help us to cut the things out of our lives that are killing our appetite for you that we would be able to seek your face and that we would be satisfied in seeking your face. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.